According to his promise? No. According to his promise? According to his promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. John chapter 4 is our text this morning. John chapter 4. Look, taking a look at this woman here, the woman at the well. Verses 5 through 42. Before we begin any of this, let's take time for silent prayer and ask the Father to sanctify our thinking, to guide us in the truth. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we are thankful once again for the faithfulness you have displayed. Thankful for the opportunity to assemble together this morning and receive instruction. And thankful most of all, Father, that you have sent your Son to die, that we might have eternal life. Thank you that being a child of yours, we have the equipment necessary to understand your word. We ask now for your blessing upon our time as we study, and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. This is now our, uh, we introduced this woman two weeks ago. We really got a, our first thorough look at the chapter last week, and uh, hopefully we can wrap it up here this morning. I appreciate those that made it out apologize for any confusion that might have crept in there. Uh, we, we are canceling the next two, uh, next week and the week after. Uh, ladies, of course, are still welcome to meet for prayer at 9 o'clock, but there will not be Bible classes uh, during uh, my absence to the Ukraine. All right, here in John chapter 4, we're looking at this woman and the circumstances involved. And uh, very rapidly, just to remind ourselves of where we are, we left off with main point 8. Halfway through the uh, the context of the material, first of all, what began as an apparent chance encounter quickly becomes a very fruitful ministry. We recognize that it might appear to be a coincidence that he just happens to be hanging out at this well and she happens to be going out there for water. We want to recognize what sovereignty is when it's at work in our lives and recognize that there is no such thing as a coincidence. Secondly, Sikar is identified with Shechem in the Old Testament. We did some work on that. Thirdly, Jesus was physically tired due to the circumstances of his hasty travel out of Judea. Aspects on kapiao that make for excellent word studies and uh, developments of the ministry where we do labor to the point of exhaustion, where we are um, afflicted but not crushed. And some of the blessings of studying the Apostle Paul and his ministry in the the details that he described in describing the uh, nature of the ministry of the Word of God. Point four, a lone Samaritan woman came out to draw water. Interesting when we study the geography on this, that there was a closer well uh, on the west side of the city as opposed to the eastern side of the city. Uh, closer, more convenient, more uh, utilized. This one was a bit further, uh, not only further in distance, but a little bit further up the hill, harder to get to and not as frequently utilized. Uh, also, the time of day this appears to be, uh, this is an unusual time, an unusual setting, and we're just getting a glimpse into the fact that she is here by herself. She's not coming with a group of other women, which would traditionally be or normally be the, uh, the activity here, and we can speculate or understand that given her uh, promiscuous lifestyle, given her um, relation with the other people here in this town, that uh, it's quite reasonable to understand that she is a bit of an outcast in many respects. We'll deal more with that when she gathers these men around and, and uh, has her uh, adulteries uh, exposed. Under point five, the Samaritans were a mixed race of Gentiles and idolatrous Jews. And this is where we spent the bulk of our time last session in breaking down the history of the, uh, the different Gentiles that were brought in by the Assyrians and populated here and intermarrying with the, uh, the renegade Jews and uh, the resulting uh, population being known as Samaritans and their false religion becomes really a, an interesting historical study. Under point six, Jesus Christ engages in this conversation from the standpoint of prophetic foresight. From the standpoint of prophetic foresight. Let's recognize, first of all, that in the process of all of this, he is functioning as a prophet. She even identifies that. 
Uh, Notice in verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus is clued in to the what ifs. He understands her positive volition. He understands that she is very eager to get some answers and she's not getting those answers among her own people. And she's not getting those answers from the Jewish people because Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So she's a woman who wants answers and isn't getting them. Once she finds out that he is a prophet, and uh, once uh, he springs this on her, and she finally, in verse twenty, uh, verse 19, the woman says to him, Sir, or Lord, Kyrios, Lord, I perceive that you are a prophet. She's eager now finally to get some answers that her people can't give her, the Jewish people won't give her, and now here's a prophet that actually will talk to her. And she's eager to get these answers, and we're going to deal with these aspects here today. He knew that this woman would have positive volition to the gospel message, but we want to relate this to his gift and his office as a prophet, not having anything to do with omniscience, as we have commented on many times. He laid aside his omniscience. He's not exercising omniscience in the uh, process of his earthly ministry. He asks her for a drink, point seven. He asks her for a drink of water and his willingness to ignore racial and gender barriers is of great interest to this woman. It gets her attention. As uh, as he says in verse seven, give me a drink. And she replies in verse nine, "Uh, how is it that you being a Jew ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. It is truly a blessing for us as church age saints to be able to go forth with a gospel message, a message that that clearly removes any kind of obstacles or barriers or anything. The greatest uh, equal rights uh, uh, effort in the history of the world is truly the, the grace gospel message of Jesus Christ, because in Christ there's no male or female, no Jew or Greek, no bond or free. All of the dis- racial distinctions, all of the gender distinctions, all of the economic uh, class distinctions Uh, become irrelevant because each one of us has the opportunity to place our faith in Jesus Christ to become a part of the family of God. And it really is a remarkable mental attitude that believers can maintain. See, a true believer with divine viewpoint and understanding the gospel message that there is no Jew nor Gentile, um, how can that believer be uh, racist or sexist or uh, prejudiced in any other form or fashion when you recognize that The issue is, are you in Christ or are you in Adam? Has no bearing on your uh, ethnicity, no bearing on who your parents were or grandparents or what kind of money you make or what side of the tracks you grew up on or any other such thing. And this woman is stunned that he's actually talking to her. What an open door opportunity. You know, and as we have uh, a willingness to give the gospel, as we are ready to give an account to anyone who asks, See, that openness may actually become uh, an element that will uh, convince whoever it is that you're talking to that you actually have a free gospel message that you're willing to give them. You're not here to sell anything. You're not asking anything of them. You're just giving them a free offer. What a what a blessing. So his uh, willingness to ignore racial and gender barriers is of great interest to this woman. It's going to come up again and again and again, primarily in a negative way, because the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the uh, the massive hypocritical legalist jerks that they are, are going to start looking down their long snooty noses at some of the people that Jesus will be eating with and drinking with and going into their homes and and uh, and so forth. And they would not give the time of day to those people. And yet Jesus Christ says, these are the ones that need the gospel. So just bear this in mind because we see it here, but we're going to see it repeatedly throughout this study. Jesus speaks to this woman in spiritual terms, but she only hears him in earthly terms. And this is where we ran out of time last week, so we can pick it up right here this morning. Verses 10 through 15. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Was he talking about physical water? Is he speaking in earthly terms here? No, he is not. This becomes very apparent. She says to him in verse 11, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? She's responding in earthly terms. In other words, 
She's standing here. He's standing here. There's a well right there. It's a deep well. And he doesn't have any rope around. He doesn't have a cup. He doesn't have anything to draw water. She's thinking in earthly terms. This is actually quite similar to how he ministered with Nicodemus. And we're going to look at that under point nine. You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. Now, let's just hold our finger there for a moment and go back to Genesis. I want to I want to key in on something back here that we looked at in our life of Jacob study. It uh, pertains to uh, not to Sechar, but it pertains to uh, Haran. And yet it is a bit of a an interesting thing to look at. Genesis 29. If you'll join me there in Genesis 29, because there is an aspect of Jacob's greatness that the scriptures don't fully uh, lay out for us. They don't fully describe it. And yet the glimpse we do have is pretty interesting. And the aspect of greatness that the Samaritans had here to hold their father, Jacob, in such reverence, I find to be interesting. Remember the. The Samaritans consider themselves to be Jewish. They consider, or not Jewish necessarily. They consider themselves to be the proper heirs of Jacob. All right, which is remarkable because Jacob, of course, has twelve sons, the twelve tribes. They don't identify with any of the tribes, so they don't have a tribal attachment per se, because they're really mongrelized from the ten northern tribes mixed with Samaritans and or mixed with Assyrians and other Gentile people. So they don't really have a tribal identification they can't identify with any of jacob's descendants so they look to jacob himself israel as their forefather as the basis for their uh for their uh, blessing and they revere him with a sense of greatness now there's an incident with a well it's not here in Sikar, but it is a well nonetheless up there in heron and it's an interesting story here when jacob first arrives there and uh I'll just read it here real quickly. Genesis 29. Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the sons of the east. He looked and he saw a well in the field. And behold, three flocks of sheep were lying there beside it. For from that well they watered the flocks. Now the stone on the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, they would then roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place on the mouth of the well. All right. This was the procedure. And this stone was so large, it was designed to be moved by a large group of men. See, several men working together could roll the stone aside. And then everybody, of course, is there to bear witness that nobody's stealing more water than they're entitled to. All right, water rights being very precious and the, the uh, division of water being very important. And so the, the method that these people had to secure that no one took more water than they were entitled to was to have this stone that was so large that they could only roll it uh, together when all the flocks were assembled together. That was the procedure. Well, Jacob does a little bit of a showing off here. And... Um, we, we really did more with this uh, in, in the Life of Jacob series than we're going to give you here this morning. But anyway, let's just look at it. Uh, Jacob said to them, my, my brothers, where are you from? And they say, we're from Haran. And he said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they say, we know him. And he said to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And here is Rachel, his daughter, coming with the sheep. Now, here comes Rachel. And immediately, man, like like Thumper in the, in the Bambi movie, you know, he's uh, he's immediately... Twitter pated and he's, you know, starts, the heart starts racing and man, she is uh, a babe, we would say. Now, here she shows up and he falls in love just by looking at her. Now, um, look what he does, though, in verse 10. When Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob went up and rolled the stone from the mouth of the well and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Just right there, all by himself, not waiting for the rest of the flocks to arrive, not waiting for the all the other men to arrive. All right. He just goes and he rolls the stone away and he does this. OK. And we, we, we did some work on this a little bit in our Life of Jacob series as far as what, uh, you know, how did Jacob have such strength or how was this all done? And we recognize that we don't know a whole lot about the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, in terms of how. Uh, in the in the in the biblical vocabulary, how the mighty men of old 
did some of the feats that we that they did. I think when we look at Samson and we look at Gideon and we look at the judges and we look at David's mighty men and so forth, we find that there's a lot that's left unsaid as opposed to what actually is said. But Jacob here single-handedly rolls that stone aside. You can't dispute that. Now, when we come back to John chapter 4, we find that this devotion to Jacob and the, um, the uh, ascribing to him of greatness... I mean, how many people do you ascribe as being great? You know, you've got Alexander the Great, right? Peter the Great, Frederick the Great. There's not that many greats that are out there, all right? Among the popes, there's only been two. They're talking about trying to turn John Paul into the Great. See, now that there's all this zeal and excitement about his funeral and so forth. There have only been two of the 278 popes, however many, that have the title the great attached to them. And here, when she says, you are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle, we understand that there were a lot of traditions here that the Samaritans had attached to Jacob. A lot of uh, mythology had built up around Jacob. A lot of, uh, uh, and we do the same thing today when we attach so many stories and great things to uh figures of American history, for example, and just stories tend to grow as as devotion and attachment and sentimentality kind of work their uh, work their deals. You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Notice he continues to speak to her in spiritual terms. He answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Clearly, he's not talking in physical terms about any liquid beverage that any human being might physically consume. He is speaking of something spiritual and utilizing the symbolic image of water and communicating the aspects of the Holy Spirit and the aspects of eternal life here. But she doesn't gather any of that. Notice in verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. See, what a benefit. She won't have to go to this distant well. Remember, she's outcast from the nearer well, and now she doesn't have to walk all this far because if he gives her this magic water he's talking about, then she'll never be thirsty again. Wow, won't that be super? She's mocking him in this statement. Point nine. Just as he did with Nicodemus... Jesus Christ is faithfully contrasting the earthly with the heavenly as he describes the source of eternal life. Just as he did with Nicodemus, Jesus Christ is faithfully contrasting the earthly with the heavenly as he describes the source of eternal life. I find it amazing that he's not only supplying water, but each person that becomes the recipient of that water is also then themselves a source of even more water. See, as you and I receive the gospel message, you and I can then become the source, as it were. We can become the conduit through which others can be led to Jesus Christ. Because we can communicate the message that we have received. Now, we don't supply eternal life. Let's... let's not get too lost in the metaphor, but let's understand the metaphor for what it is, that the living water is eternal life. Drinking is faith. If we believe in Jesus Christ, we shall be saved. And we receive the gift of eternal life, and we can then become a source of that, an abundant source of that, as it talks about a well of water springing up. A well of water springing up. I mean, think about it. Um, how long... Does a bucket of water last anyway? If it's just a bucket of water, it's a finite amount. It's a bucket. Or a barrel of water. Well, that lasts longer than a bucket of water, but a barrel of water is still a finite amount. Well, what about a, a big cistern? You get a big thousand-gallon cistern of water. Well, okay, that contains more but it's still a finite amount. When that cistern is empty, it's empty. 
Now think about the image of what's being portrayed here, a spring, a spring of water, something that is continuously gushing forth. That's better than a finite amount. It's better than a bucket or a, or a, uh, uh, a barrel or a cistern. That is a continuously producing, eternally producing spring. And this is what Jesus Christ is promising. Um, we've, it was just three weeks ago that we were here in John chapter 3 and dealing with Nicodemus. I won't spend the time this morning to go back and reread verses 3 through 15. But again, you can recognize that Nicodemus was all kinds of confused. <laughs> Jesus was talking to him about being born again. And Nicodemus is scratching his head trying to figure out, you know, he's an old man himself. You can imagine how old his mom is. And he's trying to figure out, how do I get back in, in a mother's womb and get reborn again? See, he's thinking in earthly terms and telling Jesus, you know, that just doesn't make sense. <laughs> well, compare those and do some homework and you'll find the similarities there. Point 10. The woman is skeptical and sarcastic. The woman is skeptical and sarcastic. I can relate to her. <laughs> All right. With no thought whatsoever in the spiritual realm. Not at this moment. She does have some spiritual priorities and it's going to come exploding forth in just a moment. But at this time, spiritual thinking is the last thing on her mind. The woman is skeptical and sarcastic with no thought. I should put no present thought or no current thought because she obviously has had plenty of past thinking on this. The woman is skeptical and sarcastic with no present thought whatsoever in the spiritual realm. This answer in verse 15 is highly sarcastic. Give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. She's mocking him. So Jesus wakes her up with a prophetic dose of reality. John 4, 16 through 18. Jesus wakes her up. With a prophetic dose of reality. Remember, he's operating in this whole conversation with a prophetic insight, prophetic foresight. He knows that she's going to be positive to the gospel message. But he also recognizes that she's skeptical and sarcastic. <laughs> so something has to pierce through that so that the positive volition can engage and she can respond to the gospel. I think all too often, though, we encounter people and they're skeptical and sarcastic. They're very jaded. They're very, uh, um, you know, they've heard it before. You try to talk to them about the gospel and they all of a sudden they say, oh, you know, you're one of those Bible thumpers and Jesus freaks. And, oh, you're going to talk to me about getting saved. And they kind of become jaded, skeptical. So do we just back off and say, oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> well, as you're convicted, as you're led. He doesn't just end the conversation and say, okay, you're right, I'm a nutcase. No. He wakes her up. And uh, here we have it, verses 16 through 18. He said to her, go, call your husband and come here. <laughs> Seems innocuous enough. Except for the fact that he knows she doesn't have one. She's had, actually, she's had five. And her present lover is uh, not her husband because he's a married man himself to somebody not her. All right. He said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have, correct, you have correctly said, I have no husband. You know, he gives the amen. This is true. For you have had five husbands. And the one, the husband whom you have now is not your husband. He's somebody else's husband. This you have said truly. So why did he say, go get your husband? If he knew she didn't have one. If he knew all this and he did, why did he say, go get your husband? See, it's to get it from her own words. To get her own statement, I have no husband, that he can then reply to with a prophetic insight to, to, to just lay it out there. Just nailed her to the wall. See, it's like, uh, think about Nathan and, and coming to David. Why did he come along with this parable about 
you know, a certain rich man and a certain poor man. And the rich man had all these other sheep and the poor man had one little ewe lamb. And, and why did Nathan go through all of that uh, approach? Why didn't Nathan just show up and say, thus saith the Lord, you're an adulterer, you're a murderer. <laughs> Didn't go through any of that. Not right off the bat. He shows up, gives his parable, and he gets the response out of David's own mouth. That man deserves to die. And then Nathan can say, bingo, <laughs> you said it. All right. And I think here's something similar in the sense that he's, Jesus says, go call your husband to come here. All right. And uh, I mean, given that he's engaged in a spiritual conversation here and given that this is a woman that has questions in the spiritual realm who would need guidance from her spiritual shepherd, from her spiritual leader to answer her questions, to help her understand these spiritual issues. He says, go call your husband. And he gets it from her own mouth. I have no husband. Bingo. All right. Glad you said it. Now, this is, uh, this is interesting. Point 11. The woman is neither offended nor alarmed at her immoralities being exposed. The woman is neither offended nor alarmed. We might expect one or the other or both. You know, offended, like, well, who are you? Who do you think you are? None of your business. Or alarmed, given that the Samaritans following the Samaritan Pentateuch have the, the same death by stoning for adulterers that, uh, that uh, the Mosaic Pentateuch has. <laughs> All right. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. The, the, those who engage in such activity, knowing that the penalty is sto- death by stoning, have to count on one of two different things. (laughs) Either their community is no longer uh, religious at all and no longer practicing the the, uh, the tenets of their their scriptures, in which case the whole community has just kind of abandoned Bible teaching and no one really cares anymore, so no one's going to stone her for being an adulteress. Or um, the other parties involved are well enough connected that they can offer the uh, the protection for her, see. And uh, it's interesting in any culture, <laughs> even in Israel, the administration of justice appears to be somewhat arbitrary and rather selective on occasions. David was an adulterer. Why wasn't he stoned to death? All right. David was a murderer, see. And yet, the penalty of death by stoning was not assigned to David, neither was the, um, uh, for the adultery with Bathsheba or with the, uh, the murder of Uriah. Okay? Well, we get the idea here because these men are about to be introduced. And uh, she's going to go get them. And we also get the idea here, given that she has questions about worship. Uh, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. That's her first response. She's not offended. She's not alarmed. She's excited. Here is a prophet standing right in front of her. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. She wants to get an answer to this question. And so right away we get the idea that she that she is a part of a community of Samaritan believers or Samaritan uh, God-fearing Samaritans that have at least been reading their scriptures, been reading their Samaritan Pentateuch, comparing it to the Mosaic Pentateuch, understanding that there's a difference between the two Pentateuchs. You know what I mean by Pentateuch? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible. And the Samaritans had their own version of it, see, which said that Mount Gerizim here is a mount of blessing. This is where worship should take place. Now, so this... Biblically minded woman is rather concerned, not that her adultery has just been exposed and she might be stoned to death, but that here is a real prophet who can answer once and for all, which is it? Is it Gerizim or is it Mount Zion? Is it to the Samaritans or is it to the Jews in Jerusalem? 
She's neither offended nor alarmed. She recognizes Jesus as a true prophet. She has an immediate and urgent question. An immediate and urgent question. Everything else just got shoved out out of her mind. All that thing about go get your husband, all the thing about living water, all the thing about everything else has come before this. This man's a prophet. Here's my question. Right here, right now. An immediate and urgent question. The woman said to him, Sir, Lord, Kyrios. This time, though, it's pretty obvious that the sarcasm's gone, and now that a legitimate title of Kyrios is being uh, directed here. I perceive that you are a prophet. How many prophets would the Samaritans have had up to this point? (laughs) The Bible doesn't tell us about any. If they had any prophets before now, uh, there's no biblical record that that the Lord ever sent prophets to uh, the Samaritan people. In fact, Israel hasn't had very many prophets in the last 400 years since Malachi closed the Old Testament. All right. You have the birth of John the Baptist. You've got Simeon and Anna in the temple. And as far as the biblical record is concerned, we don't know of any other prophets to the Jewish people in the last 400 years. So she has an immediate and urgent question. Which mountain is the geographic will of God for approaching him? Now, he's going to answer. Point 12. Jesus answered her with a prophetic, so important that we understand this, a prophetic and immediate application. There's an answer in verse 21 and an answer in verse 23. All right. One of which is prophetic. The other one is immediate. Jesus answered her with a prophetic and immediate application. John 4.21 is the prophetic. John 4.23 is the immediate. So fun to be able to hermeneutically approach the scriptures to understand these things with the right method of interpretation. This is so consistent with Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the prophets of the Old Testament, Elijah, prophets that would deliver a message that would have a prophetic and an immediate component, long-term, short-term component. See, very common, very common. And, uh, Among the Old Testament prophets, sometimes uh, Bible teachers that aren't careful to examine that will get confused because they'll read a verse that will have both the first advent and the second advent application and they'll lump it all together and say, well, that's a confusing prophecy. No, not at all. Not when you recognize short-term, long-term fulfillments. It gets easy. Or the aspect of prophetic shift, which is a term I came up with to describe this process. Well, here he says, woman... And that's not insulting. It's the same phrase he used for his mother. Woman, believe me, an hour is coming. That's prophetic. When neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. In other words, there's a coming age, very quickly going to be revealed to the world. It's now mystery form. But an hour is coming when geographic limitations will be totally removed. Well, we're not going to have to make pilgrimages to certain earthly locations because every church age saint is going to be a temple of the Holy Spirit. And wherever you go, there you are and ministering to before God, the father uh, behind the veil, so to speak. That's prophetic. A woman, a woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. Then verse 23, but an hour is coming and now is. You see how that next step was taken? And instead of being purely prophetic, he now brings it back to the immediate. It's, it, it still is prophetic, but it's also immediate. An hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. All right. He has a prophetic application and an immediate application. But even now. Even now, when there are geographic distinctions, when, yes, there still is an earthly temple standing in Jerusalem, yes, there's still a a Levitical priesthood functioning, there's still a high priest, there's still a veil, there's still a day of atonement, all these other things, even now, the issue is still spiritual. 
Because if you're not regenerate, if you're not born again, it doesn't matter how many animals you butcher or what mountain you butcher them on, you're not worshiping. See, the spiritual component of worship, even in the Old Testament, I think is overlooked. We addressed it a little bit a couple of Wednesdays ago in a in a uh, question and answer night on Wednesday evenings when someone had asked about confession in the Old Testament. How did rebound work? How did First John one nine work when you were you know slaughtering a goat in the process? And we we gave a little bit of instructions on that to demonstrate that it was the spiritual confession uh, alongside the uh, the actual animal sacrifice that was the true restoration of fellowship. Now. He answered her with a prophetic and immediate application. He also expressed two undeniable realities. Subpoint A. Israel is the steward nation for God on earth. Israel is the steward nation for God on earth. John 4.22 You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. Your Samaritan Pentateuch is ignorant. It is wrong. Mount Gerizim is not the Mount of Blessing. Mount Zion, Jerusalem, the city of David, that is where he chose to make his name dwell. Solomon was the son that he chose, the son of promise, devoted to the Lord, Jedidiah, that built the house where mankind could approach the holiness of God. Israel is the steward nation for God on earth. Salvation is from the Jews. All right? dispensationally of course that was a valid statement at the time christ made it what was the advantage of the jews great in every respect first of all they were entrusted with the oracles of god that doesn't mean that a gentile couldn't get saved all kinds of gentiles could get saved but the gospel information to get saved was going to come from jewish sources it was going to come from the jewish scriptures it was going to come from jewish prophets it was going to come from jewish evangelists Salvation is of or from the Jews. Dispensationally, that was true. Now, today, we wouldn't make that statement today. Today, we would say salvation is by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That they, their stewardship is presently on hold while the church has a present stewardship in this world. God is no longer functioning or no longer utilizing Israel as a steward nation while the church is his steward nation, as it were. The second undeniable reality. God's true worship occurs in the spiritual realm and not in geographic terms. God's true worship occurs in, spir- in the spiritual realm and not in geographic terms. John 4.24 God's true worship occurs in the spiritual realm and not in geographic terms. To this, I would add Isaiah chapter 1, Psalm 51, just a couple of supporting texts to demonstrate that it is it is the hard attitude of the spiritual reality behind the earthly ritual that makes the difference. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 through 17 is the text there where the Lord says in verse 11 what are your multiplied sacrifices to me says the Lord I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls lambs or goats when you come to appear before me who requires of you this trampling of my courts bring your worthless offerings no longer incense is an abomination to me New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. See, the ritual is meaningless if you're carnal or if you're not even saved to begin with and you're just trying to play the religious game. God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Now, a born-again believer, spiritually bringing a sacrifice with the right heart attitude, can do so. Because he has a living human spirit and he can truly worship in spirit and in truth. To this I would also add Psalm 51. In David's confession where he says. In 
in verse uh, 16. You do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. He knew it was the heart that was confessing that if he was still unrepentant in his heart, it wouldn't matter how many animals he butchered on whatever mountain or, or how many sacrifices he gave or however much money he gave to the temple, the tabernacle in his day, no temple yet, that it was the true confession of the heart. And David understood that. Probably the last one I'll give you on this is Hosea 6.6. 6. The Lord quoted it a number of times in his earthly ministry. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. The word loyalty there could be rendered compassion. And that's uh, how Christ generally translates it when he cites it in the gospel record. The Pharisees were all caught up in the ritual, all caught up in the religion. And Jesus Christ quoted this passage and says, go and learn what this means. This was the Lord's answer. All right, returning back to John 4. The Samaritan woman makes no indication that she comprehends what Jesus is saying. But she affirms that all her questions will be cleared up when the Messiah comes. Like in verse 25. (laughs) And this is an encouragement, by the way. She makes no indication that she comprehends what Jesus is saying. (laughs) He's talking to her about an hour is coming, an hour is coming and now is. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. Salvation is from the Jews. Uh, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. God is spirit. Those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And what does she say? Well, Messiah's coming. He'll straighten all this out. <laughs> okay. Now, is this her fault? No. She has questions. She's eager. She wants to learn. But is she equipped to learn? Has she been under teaching? Does she have a shepherd to guide her in the truth? All right. It's interesting. I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. She knows he's a prophet. She's not exactly sure what to make out of his message. (laughs) And all she can say is, well, when Messiah comes, he'll explain everything. (laughs) Now, you and I can read these verses, 21 through uh, 24, and we can gain all kinds of application out of here. You and I can go through these verses, develop some doctrines, get some principles, we can apprehend this material, spiritually speaking, because we have the uh, not only living human spirits, but we have the Holy Spirit who testifies with our human spirit and uh, communicates divine truth. I don't think uh, anyone here this morning would struggle with some of the things. And, and if you did, you could ask some questions and, and uh, you know, your husbands can help you in these texts or your pastor can help you in this text. And we can learn uh, an awful lot here. She hasn't quite put it together yet. And all she says is, you know, Christ is coming. And he will declare all things to us. She has a confidence in the coming Christ. Now, (laughs) that should be an encouragement. See, given that it's not Jesus' fault that this message isn't getting across. Right? (laughs) He's not a faulty teacher. It's not his, you know, he's not deficient in his teaching skills uh, or any other such thing. Now, the Samaritan woman is neither offended nor alarmed at Jesus' claim to be the Christ. Notice how he replied when she says, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I am. The one speaking to you, I am the Christ. She's neither offended nor alarmed. 
See, she's been speaking to a prophet. Now, all of a sudden, he claims to be the Christ. Hmm. The woman left her water pot, <laughs> went into the city. I mean, she doesn't even say, wait right here. <laughs> um, excuse me, you're the Christ? What do you mean you're the Christ? You're the Christ? Are you sure about that? Can you wait here? I'm going to go get somebody. In fact, we don't have any record that she said a peep, anything. She just dropped her water pot and, and hauled out of there, just took off top speed. She left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? The hopeful thinking, the positive anticipation. She wants the answer to be yes. When she says, this is not the Christ, is it? That's a grammatical construction that is hoping the answer to be yes. It's not skeptical. It's not sarcastic. She doesn't say, come see this man who claims to be the Christ, but I know he's really not. She says, come, this man is claiming to be the Christ, and I think he is. And she's positive. She's excited. Neither offended nor alarmed. <laughs> All right. Neat response. Not exactly sure what to make out of his God of Spirit message there. Because <laughs> she says, well, when the Christ comes, he'll explain everything. But when he says, I'm the Christ, she knows she's got to go get everybody else. And she does. Set point A, she raced off in such haste that she left her water pot. Raced off in such haste. This chapter has seen now two incidences of tremendous haste. Jesus Christ launched out of Judea in so much haste that they couldn't even stop and buy enough food for the journey. And that haste was prompted by the threat of physical death, uh, harm that the religious leaders would have put him to. All right. Now we see the second instance of great haste. This woman just launches off out of this well area and into the city very quickly, not even stopping to pick up her water pot. All right. Her fear is not the fear of physical death at the hands of some uh, persecutor. But she has a haste and an urgency because here is the Christ speaking of eternal life. You know, how fast would you run? <laughs> if you came face to face with a prophet claiming to be the Christ, claiming to be the source of eternal life. And you think, what if I'm not in time? What if I get into the town and gather people together and they don't believe me or they do believe me and they take time? By the time we get out to the well, maybe he's gone. See, she raises off in haste. It's the second time we've seen haste in this chapter. And the corollaries are kind of neat to, to work through. She summoned the men of Sikar to investigate for themselves. Now she goes to the men of the city, six of whom she knows rather well. Come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. Parentheses, we have done. <laughs> okay. Because she wasn't doing this by herself. It, it stuns me how over in John chapter 8, they drag this woman and throw her at Christ's feet and says, this woman's an adulteress. We caught her in the very act. Evidently by herself, because they didn't drag some man with her to throw him down there. Trying to figure out what act she was caught in with, without any other man or without, you know, the guy wasn't there. What act did you catch her in? So when she comes and she says, See a man who told me all the things that I have done. It's becoming pretty clear that they need to come check this out for themselves. In earthly terms, they're about to be exposed. That could be a fear. Or if she's right and this is a prophet and this is a Christ, then they've got the, the Christ. Then they've got to get serious about this uh Becoming believers, see. They've got to they gotta get serious about repenting for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All right? 
Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. I think it's the Christ. Very positive sentence. Very positive question. Now, it's, it's a particular construction in the Greek. And when, when you find it in the New Testament, the New American Standard is almost always, it, it, it phrases the question with that little is it kind of attachment on the end of the question. And that's the way that the New American Standard translators have tried to convey the positive expectation, the, 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 the way that they expect to get the answer of a yes in, uh, in that Greek phrase there. Now, meanwhile, back at the ranch. Or, I'm sorry, meanwhile, back at the well. While she's raced off into town to gather together these men, the disciples have come back out. And uh, they've got some food, so they were successful. Who knows what they had to pay to get this food? But they got some food, and uh, they might be willing to go ahead and let's, you know, move on. You know, how long does your husband like to stick around the gas station after he's filled the tank, he's bought whatever chips and soda he needs, and you've used the restroom, and okay, let's get some more miles behind us here. (laughs) The disciples might be eager to go ahead and uh, keep heading north into Galilee, because remember, they're on the run. There's uh, temple officers out looking for them that have already uh, uh, arrested John the Baptist. Meanwhile, back at the well, while the woman is in the city, Jesus has the opportunity to give his disciples a prophetic dose of reality. They need a wake up call, too, because just like that woman, they're thinking in earthly terms. And he's going to give them a wake up call. He's going to stop to teach them a Bible class and delay long enough for the woman to get back out there with all these men. And then once they get there, delay long enough, two full days even, to give some solid teaching, to give a foundation to where this city will have the uh, understanding of the gospel message and the, the revelation of the Christ in their midst. Let's look at this now. And, and it's interesting, in verses 31 through 38, all the times that I've gone through this text... I've always focused on the woman. I've always focused on the Samaritans. I've always focused on everything there. And I've kind of ignored verses 31 through 38. But Jesus isn't ignoring his disciples. He's got a message for them. There's a reason why they were absent when he was talking to this woman. And there's a reason why he has to let them have it here. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. See, they came back at verse 27. At this point, his disciples came and they were amazed that he'd been speaking with a woman. What are you talking to her for? And yet, no one said that phrase, what do you seek or why do you speak with her or what's going on? They're shocked, but they don't want to confront him about it. So you wonder what they would have said if they would have been there when she first walked up. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Here we go again. They're talking in earthly terms. He's talking in spiritual terms. He switched from water to food, but the, the issues here are contrasting earthly with, with spiritual. But the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? <laughs> you, know, you can imagine the, the comedy going on. You know, Peter's checking with Andrew and James is asking John, and, you know, did you sneak back out here while we were in the town? Did you bring him some food? Right? You weren't brown-nosing, were you, Thomas? You know? You weren't, you weren't uh, trying to, you know, we were in here trying to find food and you snuck back out here and brought Jesus a, a, a breakfast taco? You're trying to be his favorite, aren't you? You snuck out here and brought him food. <laughs> they were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. There is positive volition. There's about to be a huge revival in this town. They spent several, we don't know how long they were in there. Several minutes, a couple of hours. 
How many stores did they have to go to to find a shopkeeper, to find a food seller that would sell them anything at whatever price they were willing to pay? Maybe they were in this, in this town for an hour, two hours. There's positive volition in that town, but none of these guys knew it. None of these guys even thought about giving the gospel to anybody or telling them that, you know, hey, the Christ is here outside of town. <laughs> they were caught up trying to buy food. Didn't have time to give the gospel to these Samaritans. It says, Look, lift up your eyes because they've been closed. Look on the fields that they are white for the harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. You had an opportunity to go into that town, not only to buy food for our trip, but to bear some spiritual fruit to see some folks saved. And you didn't do it. You didn't do it. And now for two days, they will do it. They're going to watch as he testifies, as he teaches. And these things that happen here. But just think about lost opportunities because you can't go back and redo anything. You can learn from failures and hope to do better next time. Think about occasions and then you think back after the, t- after the fact and say, Oh, I could have given them the gospel. Well, why didn't you? Because you don't have your eyes open to see the fields that are white for the harvest. Point 16, and the last point of this chapter. Such was the positive volition revival in Samaria that Jesus delayed his escape for two full days. Such was the positive volition revival in Samaria that Jesus delayed his escape for two full days. I put escape in quotes. He's not really escaping. It may seem to the Pharisees that he was escaping from Judea. It might seem to the adversary that he was fleeing to Galilee. The reality was, was that Jesus Christ was obedient to the directional will of God, the Holy Spirit. And he went to his work assignment for these two days in Sychar and Samaria. Because he had to go through Samaria. The guidance of the Holy Spirit was clear. This is where he needed to be. That was the woman he needed to speak to. These men were the men that he needed to teach. This city was a city on the verge of revival. Such was the positive volition revival in Samaria that Jesus delayed his escape for two full days. You have similar uh, emphasis in the book of Acts, for example, when... um, Paul is traveling and he stays where the positive volition is and he goes where the open door opportunities are. And he told the Corinthians, he said, I hope to get to you by winter, but right now there's a wide open door of effective service for me here in Ephesus. And there are many adversaries. And so he delayed his departure from Ephesus because of the the positive volition that was there. Jesus is delaying his trip into Galilee because of the positive volition that's here. We need to be flexible in terms of God revealing his will. We're not all caught up in our plans and what we're doing, you know, and positive volition expresses itself. And we say, oh, sorry, can't help you. I'm too busy doing this over here. Wait a minute. If the Lord's opened this door, this is where he wants you to be, what he wants you to do. So for the rest of this chapter now, 39 through 43, from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him. to. So in other words, when she testified that this prophet knew all of their deceptions, they recognized this was a legitimate prophet. And when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. Not only the men that she had influence with, but they went out and got more and more. And then this revival, revivalism, uh, what is it, evangelism, explosion, revivalism, uh, whatever, it just multiplied. And they were saying to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. We have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Samaritans with an orientation to the coming Christ as not a political deliverer, but the Savior of the world. All right. After two days, he went forth from there into Galilee. Well, after two weeks, we will (laughs) 
go forth from here into Galilee. You have the next two weeks off. We will return on Wednesday, May 4th. Lord willing and rapture pending. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness, for your mercy, love, and grace. And Father, we pray that you would open the eyes of our understanding, not only to messages as you teach them, but to opportunities as you present them. Give us the spiritual perspective and perception that would recognize fields that are white for the harvest. Cause us to be sensitive to evangelism opportunities when we encounter positive volition. And we may not even know. Father, the external appearance might be sarcasm and skepticism. But Father, the heart reality may be just the opposite. And only you look upon the heart and only you can know when a person is ready to hear the gospel message. So, Father, we're asking that you would open our eyes to the white fields and cause us to be ever ready to give an account. Thank you, Father. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.